0: Man, You can all be seated. Good morning. morning. Hope you are having a good Sunday so far. Judging by that, I'm not sure. Would you go with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, We're going to unpack a pretty significant section of Scripture here by way of, uh, it might be good for us to uh, understand some context as we go through this particular chapter. Uh, so I'm going to begin with this question. Uh, why do we study the Bible? Why? You, you can answer. Why, why do we study the Bible? Profitable for, Profitable for teaching, that's right. And that would include, kind of where I'm going with this, and that would be so that we would understand it, and then we would apply it, right? Why else might we study the Bible? You kind of, yeah, it's the words of the living God, and 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 I think we can we can say because of that, it 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 is equipping us to live out what God has given us. In fact, it's. Uh, the Apostle Paul that says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and we already covered that in 3.16, that these are, these words are God-breathed and they're profitable for teaching and for rebuke and correction so that the man of God may be trained in righteousness. And so, being that they're living and active, uh, they, they not only teach us, uh, they, they equip us for daily life. All that to say this, uh, today we're going to do Uh, Some understanding. Today we're going to study a bit. And and so I would really appreciate if you followed along in 1 Timothy. If you don't have your Bible, no shame. Uh, The words will be before you on the screen. And we're going to go through this section by section, or I should say verse by verse, but in two sections. Uh, We'll cover the first section first, obvious. And go through it verse by verse. And, and the way we do this, and the reason we do this, is because as we, as we expound on the Scriptures in a place like this gathering, we want the Word of God to, to, to guide us. We don't want to guide the Word of God. We want the Word of God to guide us. And that's why we go verse by verse. And, and so, so follow along with me as we study today. Reading in Jesus' name, it says this. First of all, first of all, It really means like above all. Then I urge you that supplications, that's like things we ask for, prayers, intercessions, like when we pray for others, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may be led a peaceful life, a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Quick reminder this letter was written uh, to Timothy, a young pastor at the church at Ephesus, by the apostle Paul, who is writing to encourage him, a church that they planted together, to confront false teaching. To confront false teaching. So that's a context here. This whole chapter is about instruction for worship, much like our gathering here today. Instruction for worship. Order for worship. Did you know that what we're doing here in this building today is relatively the same thing believers have been doing since the inception of the church? Did you know that? What I mean by that is believers gathering for prayer and worship and song, teaching and preaching the Word of God, and fellowship and communion, which we're going to celebrate today as well together. Sure, we have differences in styles and traditions and emphasis, and that's true in our city, that's true across this country, and that's true around the world. Today, there are those uniquenesses, but we are doing what the early Christians were doing in their gathering some 2,000 years ago ago, which I think is quite significant, that we are united with the early church in that way. Well, as early church leaders confronted false teaching in the church at Ephesus, Paul here encourages Timothy to direct their gatherings in this way. First, he addresses prayer. Pretty straightforward. Notice verse 1, above all, pray for all people seems likely that their, their focus had become self-centered or selective. We all do that, don't we? Like, like, it's easy for me to pray for my family and for my kids. That's one that I pray about constantly. Protect my children. It's easy for me to pray for my loved ones. It's easy to pray for people in my life. But, but what, what about those who I don't agree with? What about people... I don't like, or something. Uh, What about those I'm least likely to pray for? I want you to think about someone who would be like last on your list. I know you guys probably don't have a list. But maybe you do. Who, Who are you least likely to pray for? The Word of God tells us not to be selective in our prayers. It even goes on to say, Pray for those in government, in high places, and the like. See, what we're getting at here is those in authority. We're going to talk about authority today. Paul is alluding to that. That we would be a church that would represent the greater King Jesus and live peaceably and honoring to others. It's like saying, pray for those who persecute you. Believe me, in, in the days in which Paul is writing to Timothy, no one in government was honoring the Lord Jesus. These were pagan leaders who were running and governing in pagan ways. Right? All that more to say that, that we need to be praying for our leaders. That we are an example to those who do not honor God. In fact, we've been given this responsibility to pray for others. I like what our youth do um, on a semi-regular basis, I know. They, um, they write down names of people that they know who maybe in their circles don't know the Lord. It's not a, we're better than you sort of thing. It's uh, from the heart of our youth. We want to pray for those who don't know Jesus. That's really what is being said here. That we would, as a church, pray evangelistically. That we'd pray for those in our life and outside our lives who don't know the Lord. That is our responsibility. Why? Because God desires for all to be in relationship with Him. Look at verse 3 and 4. Because God desires that all would be saved. This is no different than what it tells us in John's Gospel in 3.16. You know it. That God so loved the world. Talking about agape love. Unconditional love. Not romantic love. But unconditional love. That God has such unconditional love that it goes on to say that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, now, intellectually, I don't think for Christians this is a hard thing to agree with. But I wonder by our very actions if this is not something that really deep down inside we struggle with. That God desires, just as the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, that all would be saved. I want you to ask yourself the question, do you believe that God desires that all people would be saved. Sometimes I wonder if we wish that just the people who think like us (laughs) would be saved, would come to faith in Jesus Christ. God's Word says don't be selective. Why? Well, we get a, a glimpse of the heart of God here. That God loves all people and takes no pleasure in our rebellion and sin. Just as Ezekiel 18.23 says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that He should turn from His ways and live just as Jesus declared on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, He said. That's the heart of our Lord Jesus. He goes on to talk about what Jesus has done for us. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. By the way, is this testimony widely accepted in culture today? And specifically, a word like this, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. Referencing who? Or whom? Who or whom? Doesn't matter. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, that's what it's referencing. I was in a conversation with someone two weeks ago. I don't say this to disparage this person. We had a wonderful conversation. But this is what I was told. Jesus is the only way in the Christian religion. But other religions have their own way too. Think about that statement for a second. Maybe you tend to think this way. Maybe you're tempted to think this way. The problem with this sort of thinking is, first of all, if all things are true, then nothing can be really true. The other issue with this statement is it's a true statement in itself. So what we're saying now is that what's true for one person is not true for another, and that's the truth? You see what I'm saying? No, that's a contradiction of reality. You're either in this room or you're not. I don't think that. I know that. You agree? Not a popular set of verses here. Yes, verse 5 is very exclusive. In its statement, based on the understanding that there is only one who offers salvation. Why? Because only one laid down his life. Only one was the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Only one conquered sin, death, and the grave and rose in three days and declared. That's the testimony talked about here. Victory over the enemy that desires to destroy our life and lead us to hell with him. That's the reality of what is being said here. You know, the truth is, no one has even made that claim outside of Jesus. I'm not saying no one has ever uttered it. I just mean even of the major religions of the world, Nona has claimed to take upon himself the sins of the world and sacrifice himself or herself for the sins of the world. See, our contention with the truth, and this goes for each and every one of us, is really not an intellectual dispute. It's a hard issue. and one we're going to see later that's really an issue with authority. And we'll get to that. But I want you to consider what I mean when I say it's a hard issue. Like, I would like to use arguments against God's word because I feel like they don't sit well with me, and I would rather do what I want to do because I want to be in control of my life. Do you see what I'm saying? we come up with arguments and justifications in our life to say, well, I think this is the right way because I want to do the things that I want to do and I don't want anyone telling me not to do them. Our contention with the truth, it's really not an intellectual contention. It's a, um, a hard issue. And it has to do with Authority. Let's just put it this way. There is only one who has the authority to determine truth. The one outside of time and space. The one who created all things. Moving on. Look with me at verses 8 through 15. We have more instruction for corporate worship and prayer. Again, remember that the Apostle Paul is addressing false teaching in the church at Ephesus. This might be one of those sections of Scripture that we might label, does the Bible really say that? It says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. With modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Still with me? Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I have only one time when I was preaching had someone scream at me and walk out. No, I'm serious. (laughs) It's only happened one time. I've had people walk out. But scream at me and walk out. Only once. It was very uncomfortable. But let me just say that about this scripture text. Because maybe it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable at all, and maybe for some it makes your skin crawl. I don't know. But let me tell you, if the word of God isn't working in our hearts and making us a bit uncomfortable, something is wrong. I'm serious, it should do that as we unpack it and study it. The first part of this section of scripture addresses a group of men who are getting caught up in angry doctrinal disputes. There was likely at Ephesus infighting between certain people within the church and it was coming out in the place of worship, in their gatherings. Imagine the disorder that that alone was causing. And the Apostle Paul encourages Timothy, teach the men how to pray. Teach the men how to pray. You know, the church is only as strong as the men of the church. I say that with all respect to all people. What I mean by that is, God has given, men, hear me out, God has given men in both the home and the church a very unique role of spiritual leader. And when we don't take on that leadership role, everything suffers. We see it in society today. You want to affect society in one way? Have men lead as godly and righteous? Lead their homes, raise their kids put the Lord first in their life and not themselves. That alone would change society as a whole. But we don't see that. Just like things weren't going well in the early church. And so Paul first addresses the men. The second part is about a group of likely wealthy women in the church who we learn later we're looking, we're likely overlooking, not, not welcoming, the less fortunate in the church by, by way of dressing immodestly or creating division, both with their attitudes, maybe their focus in worship, that sort of thing. Making church about a fashion show, so to speak, we wouldn't do that. But also by usurping others who are in leadership or authority. So, so Paul addresses the church in this way. How, how do we make sense of what we read here, and how does it apply to us? Like, like can we apply this to our lives today? It's why I said at the onset of the, of the talk today that we, sometimes we open up the Scriptures and we, we ask the question, what does this mean and what does it mean for us? Well, there's really only three ways we can look at it. Number one, that it means women should not teach in the church at all. In other words, they should not talk at all which, by the way, over church history um, has been an interpretation that people have held to. In fact, someone said after the first service to me that in their church growing up, that that was a thing. Secondly, does it mean women who are educated the way men are can teach in the church? Now, the reason for this is we know that there was there was an education disparity, disparity. Excuse me, between men and women in the day in which the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and and that certainly is a part of what's going on here. Um, that that likely uh, there was infighting and things weren't things were disunited on, on a ga- in a gathering because both men and when we were fighting, and, and, and some saying things that were not biblical, that sort of thing. Keep in mind, of course, we're addressing error in the church. Thirdly, um, these, these verses uh, could, could be, I guess, applied in this way, that, that what is written here is only written to the church at Ephesus. Well, I don't know where you sit on this yourself, Uh, Believe me, as a pastor, I assume nothing, I I, I believe that we would have all three thoughts represented here in the church, in a church this size. Um, I I don't think for one second that just by this, you know, preaching today, I'm going to change your mind about any one thing, but I, I do want the Lord to work in our hearts as we apply it today, so here are some thoughts of my own, I believe guided by the Holy Spirit. Number one, church, we must be very, very careful not to allow our culture to dictate how we interpret the Scriptures. If men have a particular role in the church that is ordained by God, and we should serve God, those in the church and God in this way. Don't be so quick to think that we've woken up to some new understanding today because we are so much more intelligent than they were back in the day. One of the things that bothers me the most when people speak derogatorily about the Scriptures is when they say something like, well, that's just kind of an outdated book. Because that is a gross misunderstanding of context, of understanding, of of how it applies. Yes, every book in human history has been written in a time and a context. And so we consider all of those things. And we must never, and I mean never, allow culture to dictate what we believe about God's Word, for our culture is more confused. than ever before. (laughs) I mean, what we hear one day is gone the next day. And so we must be very, very careful. Secondly, as I kind of already alluded, the Bible was written in a particular time and culture, and for that we need wisdom as to how we might understand and apply the Word of God. I mean, we have to deal with cultural nuances all the time In the text, we do this all the time. I mean, there are many things in the Bible that we use discretion on in relationship to how we apply these verses to our lives. We all do it. No one applies every single thing that has been said in the Word of God exactly the way it's been said. I'll give you an example. In the book of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes instructing men and women about worship practices and prayer just like he does with Timothy here in 1 Timothy. But in this particular teaching, the church is in dispute about the use of praying without a head cover. We didn't cover this in seminary. By the way, some people still practice this today. And in some cultures, this means a lot, depending upon what religion you are. The head covering in Europe in the first century carried with it a particular connotation. The head covering was representative of a person being under authority. Today, hats and coverings, at least at Emmaus, don't mean that. In our church culture, they don't seem to carry the same connotation, although it means something to some, even in our own community. And so we don't, in this sense, apply it. But just so that we're careful not to pick and choose, I want to say, we must deal with interpretation and what we'll all just call grammatical analysis in one way or the other. One example we actually have in our text. That verse 12, and I'll read it again for you, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's ESV. That same word for quiet is also used in verse 2 for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Interpreted a bit differently. Quiet life or peaceable. And that's what that word means literally. It means tranquil or quiet life. To lead a peaceful church, and quiet life, then does not mean to be mute. It means stop stirring up drama and discord, which we all could hear, (laughs) every one of us. On top of that, as we even consider something like this, we have to use both what we call exegesis and eisegesis. Still with me? What I mean is, as we interpret the text, we take what is in the chapter and the verse and the book and the the surrounding verses and and we, we look at it and compare it to the context in which it's written. But we also look at the Bible as a whole as we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So let's do that right now real quick. You guys still with me? All right. First Corinthians eleven five talks about women praying and prophesying in the church. Romans 16one through four and seven commends sister Phoebe, a servant of the church, also Prisca and Aquila, which Paul calls my fellow workers in Christ, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Verse 7 says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen. Acts 18.26 says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That one's interesting. Leading me to just simply say this, these verses do not prohibit all speaking and teaching in all forms in the church. Uh, but there is a greater principle about authority. One thing which appears very clear to us in Scripture is that men and women have different roles within marriage and the church. Children and parents have different roles in the home and the church. Leaders have different roles than those in non-leadership positions. For God has established an order just as we see in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just as Christ was submissive to God the Father. I find it interesting that in our culture today, even in the church, the idea of submissiveness carries with it a connotation of something lesser than. Men have a role, a key role, in the authority of the home and the church. And, and yet, somehow, we, we, have, we have labeled certain roles as lesser than and greater than, but that's not what the Word of God is doing. That's what our culture has done to it. We created the tension. The, the term submission has a derogatory connotation because of our world's attitude towards it. Why? Because living in sin, we all struggle with a contention toward authority. Every single one of us. Constantly in our everyday life, we question authority. We might not do it out loud all the time, but we do it internally. Rather than uh, making something about the greater whole, we want to make it about ourselves. And that's what was happening in the church, as Paul writes to Timothy. That there was disorganization and disorder because people were making it about themselves. I'm reminded of what James 4.7 says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A lot to this. I'm going to let you chew on it on your own because I could preach two more hours on it and I'd be fine with that, but you wouldn't. So, Let me close with verse 15. Everyone just take a deep breath. I'm serious. Because verse 15 is a verse. What does it say? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now what does that mean? We don't have all day. But let me tell you what... The Mormon doctrine teaches is that we got to do something to be saved. And for women, the best thing you can do is give birth to a child. Is that what this is saying? Well, much has been made of a verse like this, but the best explanation I have ever heard is simply this. If you look at the original Greek, Uh, there is what we call an article before the term childbearing, making it simply the childbearing. As if to say, we will be saved through the one, the child, Jesus, who will come through a woman fallen and broken like all mankind. And he will save. He will save. He will save the world from rebellion. He'll save the world from death. And this child was born through woman. This amazing, amazing role, only one was given. And he would save. Save anyone who would believe in him. Save anyone who notice that word put their faith and trust in him, offering us love and holiness and self-control. That's Jesus. It's why we commune with Jesus. That's why Jesus is our is our focus. And our attention. It's why He is the only mediator between us and God. Because of the great chasm that has separated us from our Creator. Jesus. Jesus saves. He alone saves. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, our struggle with authority is is a fleshly thing that that we deal with every day of our lives. That that we have a bent to want to do things our way, control things. And, And we don't really want anyone telling us what to do. But Lord... You desire that we would be submissive to your authority in order that we would not only live peaceably with one another, but that we would be an example for the one who came to save. So that the world would know that salvation is found in Jesus Christ, who loves and desires that all would come to the knowledge of the truth and so do we declare that today Lord and we submit to your authority and we ask you by your grace that you would fill us and you would shape us and you would mold us as only you can as we now turn our attention to your sacrifice in what you have done for us and receive you into our hearts Lord I pray that with contrite hearts we'd come before you and we'd lay down the things that we must surrender to you in order for us to grow into men and women of God you desire us to be in the church you desire for us to be as we represent Jesus you to the community and to the world. Lord, thank you for the work you do in our hearts through your word. We ask your blessing as we go from here in your name. Amen.